As always, the dulcet tones of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass means it's time for another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. On this edition of the pod, we turn to some familiar faces, or voices, as it were, Joe Polakowski and Dave Cameron. And we also bring into the fold Eno Saris. What do these three men have in common, besides each being insufferable nerds? Answer, they all attended baseball's winter meetings in Orlando, Florida. Last week on the pod, we talked to Dave Cameron and Joe Polakowski just hours after they had touched down in Orlando, Florida. They gave us some clues as to the sights and or sounds of the Dolphin and Swan in Orlando where the winter meetings were taking place. Now we return to them to ask for their final impressions, as well as also eliciting the impressions of Eno Saris. In what follows, you'll hear Dave Cameron discuss the drinking habits of the Boston media, Joe Polakowski discuss the prevalence of Twitter at this year's winter meetings, and hear about an interview that Eno Saris conducted entirely in Italian. All of this and more white-hot content on this episode of Fangraphs Audio. Yes, I am Carson Sestouli, and yes, this is, in fact, Fangraphs Audio. Joining me on this uh, particular edition of the podcast, we have two voices uh, that will sound very familiar as uh, voices of uh, people who not only contributed to the show, uh, but also made uh, sort of hurled violent accusations against each other. Uh, one of those voices uh, has a, a New York, New Jersey accent, um, and it belongs to Mr. Joe Polakowski. Joe, how are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm very well, but I fail, to, I fail to see how I have any sort of accent. I speak normal, Carson. Everyone else speaks weird. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that you think that. Um, keep doing that. Uh, it's it's charming. Um, <laughs> another, uh, another another voice you'll, you'll recognize is that of Fangraph's full-time employee and, uh, and king of most media uh, joining us, I think, probably from the American South. It's Dave Kierman. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good, Carson. How are you? I'm all right. Dave, you, uh, I, I read a Twitter, and of course we're going to talk quite a bit about the winter meetings. You, uh, was, I think it was a brief post maybe that you put up in Fangraphs or a tweet that, uh, that the, the proceedings were pretty tiring for you. Is that right? Yeah, I think by the uh, time I got back on Friday, I was, or late Thursday, I didn't sleep for about two consecutive days. Uh, unfortunately, my wife did not let that happen. Oh, that happens sometimes with the uh, yeah. the lady friends, uh, as I'm aware. Yeah. Uh, now, a voice that uh, the listener will be somewhat familiar with, but we haven't heard for a little bit around these parts, is that of uh, our man on the West Coast, uh, and one who's been uh, um, who's chronicled the winter meetings in maybe a slightly different way than Joe and Dave, but uh, still in a pretty uh, excellent way, is Eno Saris. Eno, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. And, and uh it's nice and warm here on the West Coast. So. Yeah, right. And, of course, I mentioned uh, before we hit record that it was negative uh, uh, one without wind chill uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, which is the um, headquarters of Fangraphs Audio. Now, each of you three uh, had the distinction of having attended – well, we'll find out if it's a distinction, I suppose – of having attended baseball's winter meetings in Orlando, Florida. Uh, listeners will remember that last Monday, Dave Cameron and Joe Paul came on to discuss, I guess, their first impressions, maybe the um, the uh, parameters of the Jason Worth contract, uh, both, uh, I guess, from a more analytical standpoint, and also just the reaction around uh, the winter meetings. This podcast will serve as a winter meetings wrap-up of sorts, a, a recap, and so we could perhaps get a better understanding of, of exactly what goes on at the winter meetings and all of the excitement. Dave Cameron, uh, when we talked to you last, uh, you 
I think we pr- probably hadn't even spent 24 hours yet at your first winter meeting. Uh, you, you've been around a little bit for the Jason Worth sighting, uh, long enough to uh, probably to pay too much for dinner. I'm wondering, just in terms of your general takeaway from the event, uh, you know, uh, you said you went in without expectations, uh, but it was still surprising. You are, do you continue to be surprised? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it's really an odd event. And I think, like, maybe the more often you go, the more normal the whole organized chaos seems. But to me, it's just very odd to go to something that kind of resembles a conference and has no schedule, and in which people generally just sit around waiting for something to happen. I mean, there was times when the media room would be full of people typing away on their keyboards, and nothing had happened for six or eight hours. So whether they were just chatting with friends or ordering pizza, I'm not really sure. But there were, you know, at any given point, 100 people pounding away on keyboards with no news to write about. Uh, and we all just kind of waited for, you know, teams to do something. And then the Red Sox were nice enough to break the Carl Crawford story at midnight, causing us all to have to stay up until ungodly hours in the morning when most people had already been partaking in bar-related activities and we're not especially sober. So perhaps one of my favorite moments was watching Boston writers, several sheets to the wind, trying to figure out how they were going to go write comprehensible Carl Crawford stories at 1230 in the morning when they could barely stagger up to the media room. It was, it, that was quite a sight. Yeah, now, uh, it, it, might, uh, it might be sort of a fun um, uh, exercise to go back to those stories and see if they resemble the pro styles of the, the people who write them, the general pro styles of the people who wrote them. Uh, would you guess that they would or that they would? Uh, it's hard to tell. I, I don't read the Boston media enough to know if they often write as if they're completely drunk, but uh, <laughs> I would imagine some of those articles the next day might have needed heavy editing from the, from the desk in Boston. Uh, I would say that, and, and of course, uh, there are some good guys in the Boston media, but uh, some of the writing up there, one must uh, one, one is well served to be drunk while reading it um, in order to, uh, to tolerate it. So, uh, so you, you sort of a lot of sitting around. Uh, in those, now, there are some scheduled events, right? There's the Rule 5 draft uh, in their managerial interviews. I mean, were there any other scheduled events beyond that, or, or did those not even really count for you? Well, I mean, the Rule 5 draft is essentially the close of the meetings. Like, that's kind of the unofficial end. When it ends, all the teams leave, <laughs> and the meetings are over. So to me, that's not even a scheduled event as much as it is, like, a closing ceremonies. Uh, there were managerial interviews during the afternoon. So they'd say at, like, 2.30, such and such a manager is going to come to this corner of the media room and such and such a manager is going to be at that corner and they would have scrums with you know the local reporters going and asking questions and some of those were more interesting than others um, for the most part you know managers say the same thing so uh, you know I didn't find those particularly thralling there were some other uh, pseudo scheduled events in that like you know the Carlos Pena deal was announced I believe Wednesday morning so Scott Morris, Carlos Pena and Jim Hendry came into the media room where they had a stage set up to do a televised press conference and they answered questions about the contract and Boris said some relatively interesting things. And so there were things like that that were scheduled kind of on the fly, but it's not like you woke up Wednesday morning knowing there was going to be a Carlos Pena press conference at 11 a.m. That was just one of those deals where, you know, a half hour beforehand, word got around like, hey, Pena and Morris are going to be in the media room in half an hour, and then everyone would run upstairs. It seems bizarrely unorganized the way you're describing it for something that's kind of important. I mean, do you see this as something that will change over the next five or ten years, or do you think that, that people just like it like it is? 
Yeah, I'm really not sure. I mean, I think my impression of having only gone once, I, I would be hesitant to make suggestions on how it should be run because, you know, maybe in other years it's different or maybe they like the way it works. To me, I'm not even totally sure why they exist, to be honest with you. It's it's very odd that all 30 teams and a whole bunch of media entities pay thousands and thousands of dollars to fly everyone to one city so that they all communicate by email and text. Like, really, I mean, we, we break news on Twitter, we discuss it in blog posts, the teams make trades over the phone. There, besides, like, the social aspect of it, I'm not really sure why the winter meetings continue to exist in their current form. Okay, well, Joe Paul, you're, you're a gentleman who's been to the winter meetings before. This was, I believe, your third trip down there. Um, you know, first of all, why do you think, why do you think they exist? Uh, I think Dave hit it right at the end. Uh, it's definitely, at this point, it's a social aspect. And there's always going to be the minor league side and the business side and you know, the job fair. Uh, that's, that, that's, you know, kind of, the side, it's it, to us the sideshow of the winter meetings, but it's, it's always going to be a major part because you know, th- those are in th- those are in person events. Uh, but I really do think there's definitely a social aspect. I really think I really do think I think the media enjoys getting together once a year all in one place. I, I think the execs, I'm not sure how much they like it, but you know you see them walking around the rooms, you see scouts walking around and talking to people. Uh, so I think it's really just a big mixer, really, um, uh, and you know maybe some work gets done. And, and, and now listen, so. Because especially for you, maybe coming from a slightly different angle of electronic media, um, but knowing also that there is this sort of uh, old guard of baseball and journalism, you, you know, is this? Do you think that there is some value to the social aspect? You know, does it help somehow um, uh, stories get out in a specifically ordered way? Is it? Does it? Is it something that helps the guys at the very top of the heap because they continue to increase their relationships to agents and players? There has to be something to that. I can't really speak to it because I'm not uh, so close to that kind of matter that uh, that I would know firsthand. Uh, it, it seems to be that way, uh, but I'm not really sure. I really just think it, it's really it, it's more like a mixer, as I said before. It's more than anything else. Uh, and I'm not saying everyone goes there to you know pass the day along doing whatever and then get sloshed at night with everyone. Uh, but it's it's definitely more of a social aspect now. Um, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this on the on the the first day podcast. But uh, Jack Curry of the S Network came over to introduce himself to Mike Axisa, my River Ave Blues colleague and Rotographs contributor. Uh, he came over to introduce himself to us. And, you know, one of the first things he said was how different this was than in years past, because before it was an actual event, you know, you'd see a GM walking by. You might see him West Wing style walking by with another GM or maybe some of his, his cronies. Uh, whereas now the, the executives make themselves very scarce unless it's uh, – Unless they're scheduled to be somewhere. Yeah, you said also, um, and of course Dave, Dave made reference to the the use of electronic media now, um, and and you mentioned uh, you you mentioned that Twitter, uh, of course, is playing a much larger role. Perhaps it's you know um, even considerably bigger than last year. Uh, can you talk more, more about the the use of Twitter and electronic media in general? Uh, yeah, uh, Twitter's been around. I think 2006 it came out. Uh, and it, it kind of grew, and then in the past, I'd say two years, it's been like an, it grown exponentially in the baseball world as a tool, uh, for socializing and reporting. And it was, I remember last year at the winter meetings, almost everyone had Twitter, but it wasn't quite yet the place where people broke stories. I, it, there were a couple of things. I remember when Craig, when Craig Calcaterra had, uh, had the, had the scoop on Rich Harden last year, he didn't even break that on Twitter, he broke it on Hardball Talk. 
So it, it's definitely changed uh, from there in that now almost everything breaks right on Twitter, uh, and that leads to, I guess, more uh, liberal dissemination of rumors. Whereas if you, it seemed like this week, if you heard someone whisper something, you didn't even care who said it, you kind of repeated it on Twitter, and that's, it got a little, I don't know, it was amusing at first, but it got a little tiring by the end. Well, I know, uh, actually, Craig Calcaterra just today on Twitter was lamenting the fact that there wasn't enough news. Uh, do you find this during the day, the fact that there's not enough news to keep up with the amount of people who want to cover it? Uh, well, maybe now, uh, after the meetings, but uh, at the meetings, it seemed like there was, a, if you wanted to find a rumor, it wasn't very far from you. Right, well, he was. Uh, he also went on to say that this is, this, he was seeing the value in the mystery team. <laughs> Carson, there's no value to a mystery team except to an agent and his client. Right. Okay. All right. Um, Eno, uh, you uh, were also attending your first winter meetings, and we haven't had a chance to hear your impressions on it. Um, you know, what was your general sense of it when you were down there? I was. It was kind of hard to keep my jaw up and uh, the glaze out of my eyes. I was, uh, you know, a rookie rookie at, at a, an event like that. I, I felt uh, it was great, and I was also sort of at times surprised, of course, by the lack of structure, but uh, just being able to sort of mingle among uh, those people, and, and yes, at the bar, um, I thought was was pretty awesome. And just meeting everybody, uh, I had a great time. Were there, were there any, any particular, uh, you know, people you met um, that made an impression on you, or you know, maybe surprised you with, um, um, you know, with how with how they were in person? Um, actually, I was. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty funny um, to meet Craig Calcaterra and uh, compare him to his uh, Twitter icon. It looks exactly uh, the same. Exactly. Yeah. The same. <laughs> In fact, I was looking for Craig, and someone said, "Just look for his Twitter icon." And, and sure enough, and lo, lo and behold, there he was. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that, that's one good way. Now, now, one one way you've uh, you've covered, and I think it looks like we'll continue to cover uh, the winter meetings for Fangraphs, uh, was by a, a couple interviews. One of which you posted, I believe, on Friday, which was an interview with uh, John Copalella of the. Um, of the the Atlanta Braves, uh, can you talk a little bit about Copalella and and uh, just his his position with the Braves? Yeah, uh, John assists uh, the two the two top guys at the, on the Braves, Frank Bren and Bruce Mano, uh, and he's I guess you would call him the stats guy. Um, I think his official title is uh, director of baseball administrations, but. Um, he uh, he was a stats guy on a team that uh, you know mo- many people don't think of as a sort of a stats stats based team. So I thought was, I thought I'd be uh, asking him more about that than anything. Uh, but we went we went some pretty interesting places. Talked about defensive stats and uh, he was he was great. The one thing that was so nice about him was that he he sort of recognized that I was a rookie and and, and was looking out for me. So <laughs> he said, you know, I wasn't a rookie too many years ago. I was a rookie too many years ago. So. You know, I, I want to help people out, so that was that was really nice of him. Now, uh, one of the things that sort of came out from that, and, and now, well, first of all, uh, I'm, I've been led to believe that this interview with John Copalello was conducted entirely in Italian. Is that is that a fact or not? <laughs> not true at oh, all. Oh, no, at all. Uh, it's not it's <laughs> no, in English, sorry. I guess. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Um, was that the the Braves are maybe more of a stats oriented team than uh, we might generally acknowledge, or you know, than. And, uh, at least for, for me, someone who follows the game pretty closely and the, and 
the, the stats side of it um, closely uh, than someone like me might expect. Uh, was that something that surprised you? And, and could you just talk a little bit about the, the sort of stats that the Braves are using? Well, you know, these these teams are businesses, and I, and I can't imagine a team um, or a business not using every um, every tool at their disposal. So I've long thought that the sort of money ball split, the idea that, you know, some teams are all scouting and some teams are all stats, um, I've sort of long thought that was uh, a bit of a straw man. Um, and it was it was gratifying to sort of hear a team that people thought of as more scouts-based um, sort of showing me that that was true. I think that every team has to use all the the, the tools at their disposal. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, he even admitted in, in the interview maybe the reasons why that uh, people consider them uh, more scouts-based. You know, when he's talked about defensive stats, he said, yes, we look at all of them, we try to blend them all, and if there's any sort of disagreement in the stats, then we might, you know, end up, Going to our scouts, so there's there is a moment at the very end where you may have to decide one or the other. Maybe some teams tend one way and some teams tend another, but no team, you know, ignores the stats. Okay, now now I do want to follow that up in a second. Uh, first, I want to just find out from you. I think we might have a couple other, at least one other interview uh, coming out either on Fangraphs or Knockgraphs. Is that the case? That's right. Um, and one of the fascinating things for me, and the, I guess the easier thing for me, was to meet other members of the media because uh, we spent a lot of time just talking to each other in the media room and down at the bar. Um, and I met uh, Shannon Dreyer, um, who uh, is uh, the voice of the Mariners or, or works on the flagship station for the Mariners, and she had a really interesting story. So uh, we're going to have a piece on Notgrass coming out this week where uh, I interview her and just learn how she got to be where she is. Uh, it's. I think I, if people receive it well, it's something that um, I'd like to do. I think people have so many interesting stories. You know, talk to Craig about, you know, being a lawyer that had a blog on the side and um, and how he ended up at Hardball Talk as a full-time blogger. I think stories like that could be interesting to people. Well, and of course, if, if I may editorialize for a moment, the interesting thing about uh, the writers, of course not all of them, but many of them, is the fact that their job is to, um, you know, to articulate themselves well. Um, and of course, we saw, uh, as for example, with uh, David Brown's Answer Man piece with Luke Scott uh, at Yahoo, uh, that sometimes when players talk and decide to articulate themselves in a public manner, um, that all hell breaks loose. Um, of course, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Yahoo received a number of hits for that, so one could make the case that that's good for them. I was actually standing uh, right, right next to them when that interview was going down. And didn't quite realize um, the effect that it would have. I didn't hear the the moment that he started going into Obama's um, birth certificate, but I did hear him say that venison is 80% leaner than beef. Well, venison so. is delicious. I, 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 can, uh, <laughs> I can attest to that fact. Hey, listen, I want to go to, to you, Cameron, uh, with regard to something that Eno was talking about here, which is you know the amount that the, the Braves use statistical analysis in, the, in their... Um, you know, in their assessments of players and how that might be surprising even to Fangraphs readers. I'm curious, uh, is this an isolated incident where the Braves are using stats more than we might assume, or is this something that's, uh, you know, that's maybe more the case with other organizations and they just don't flaunt it? Uh, yeah, I think it's one of the interesting things. Like John made an interesting comment to me, you know, that I think of made the 
final piece where he talked about, you know, part of the reason that people assume that the Braves are stats only or scouts only is because they have some pretty famous scouts. And so, like, guys like John Charles have had, you know, books written about them, and, you know, they're just uh, highly regarded scouting types. But, you know, I, I think that we should be careful to not assume that just because an organization has a uh, high-profile scout does not mean they also don't have somebody down in the trenches doing some dirty work. And so I do think that there is uh, maybe an organization or two, perhaps located in Houston and Kansas City, that do not care at all for statistical <laughs> analysis. Uh, but the other 28 clubs, I think, almost certainly do. And, uh, you know, we should realize that almost every decision is a blend of both. Now, uh, might, might one of the reasons that a team like the Braves or one of these other teams uh, not divulge their interest in st- uh, statistical, sorry, statistical analysis. You know, might they not divulge it uh, as a sort of uh, public relations move? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely been we've seen backlashes happen against organizations, especially you know, Seattle is a great example from last year where so many words were written about the things that the Mariners were doing in terms of defense and being at the cutting edge of statistical analysis and profiles of Tony Blangino, the assistant GM, and then you know, then they were terrible. And so uh, there was certainly uh, a backlash against the idea that the Mariners were smarter than everyone, and then they probably got their comeuppance. And so I think uh, teams like the Braves might prefer to just stay under the radar and say, look, we're doing what we're doing, and so that way we don't have a, a terrible year. Journalists don't take chances to say, aha, they're not as smart as they think. These fools got what was coming to them. And so I think if maybe uh, they see it as a, a risk-reward, where if you promote yourself, then there's certainly a chance for backlash when failure comes, where if you stay under the radar, um, then you can kind of fail in peace. Right. Now, well, one of the teams you mentioned is the Royals, and, and of course, they made two uh, basically comical signings uh, since we last talked. Uh, they signed Jeff Raycourt, and they also signed Melky Cabrera, uh, both players probably not shockingly uh, ex-Braves. Is it, a, is it a comedy now, Dave Cameron, with uh, Dayton Moore's proclivity for signing ex-Braves? I mean, I think at this point, the Frank Hoare thing was only humorous because everyone in the world has been writing that this was going to happen for like six months. And so this was kind of like the most obvious uh, fit of any team and player uh, happening this winter. Uh, I, I, don't, I guess I don't quite share the same disdain for these moves that everyone else does. If you looked at the Royals outfield before they made those two moves, the guys they are displacing are terrible. And uh, so I, I'm not going to like shed tears that Mitch Meyer is going to get less at bat. Uh, going forward because the Braves brought in two guys or the Royals brought in two guys and you know I think I'm an actually a Melky Cabrera supporter I think you've got some ability there and can uh, potentially turn into something and they're both one year contracts so you know I think to me these aren't the kind of deals that should be have scorn heaped upon them kind of like the Gil Mesh and Jose Guillen contracts did those were legitimately franchise wrecking deals these are just kind of humorous notes that kind of confirm a stereotype that Dayton Moore has developed Right. Hey, now, Joe Paul, can you think of a general manager working today who, um, so as as Dave Cameron said, these moves uh, by Dave Moore were not, you know, they were not uh, franchise wrecking moves. He's he's already he's already done that in the past. But can you think of any GMs at this point who have such a predictable uh, approach to to uh, signing or or acquiring talent? Uh, there seem to be two that come immediately to mind when you said that. Uh, Brian Sabian being one, but as we said in uh, the la- one of the one of the previous pods, it's kind of tough to get on him because of the World Series thing. And even if we can get on him, it's kind of pointless. Um, Jim Hendry does come to mind now. 
And he signed a couple, a few really bad contracts uh, off the top of my head. Uh, the Carlos Zambrano extension seemed a bit unnecessary, uh, considering what he was at the time and, and how he was progressing. And uh, the, the Alfonso Soriano contract, I didn't understand from the get-go. Why you would give a guy like him eight years, I have no idea. Uh, but, you know, the, he's definitely a guy you can see. And he's kind of stopped, I guess, out of necessity. But, you know, if he had money, I think he'd be right there trying to, you know, break the, break the franchise with Cliff, Cliff Lee, too. Can I throw out a uh, a name for the most predictable GM? Yeah, sure. How about Brian Cashman? Just look at the top free agent and assume they'll throw a lot of money at him. Yeah, but he's not a franchise breaking thing. They that they're using their top, you know, their their best, their most available resource. Right, that's not saying you make bad decisions, but it's no, he's predictable. Top, if, if, yeah, top free agent in the market, Brian Cashman's going to go after unless his name is John Lackey. Right, exactly. And in that, in that case, he'll just go trade for somebody. Well, yeah. and I'll interject here. Did, do you guys know that John Lackey was a, was a four-win pitcher this past season? I did. Would that surprise you, Cameron? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I guess I had looked at his uh, peripherals enough when I was writing up on things about him during the season that, it, you know, I, I realized that it, uh, there was a lot of talk about his significant regression backwards because of the ERA, but he was basically the same pitcher he's always been. Yeah, that was shocking to me. Joe Paul, does that surprise you? It, it does surprise me a bit, um, and you know, watching you know, I watch a lot of Red Sox and a lot of Rays games for obvious reasons during the season, uh, and it just seemed like he didn't have the command that he had when he was with the Angels, and that's what kind of surprises me about the, uh, the the four win that it seemed like it was a definitely inherent problem he had. Now it's not to say he's going to have it again next season, uh, but it definitely looked like he was a bit less valuable than the four wins after watching. Uh, I probably caught about ten of his starts, maybe. Right, don't the uh, Red Sox and, and Yankees play about was it 37 games against each other per season? Is that what it is right now? <laughs> it just feels that way. Yeah. I think those they, games are all on Sunday night baseball as well. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, uh, right, uh, they're only 52 Sundays per year, so that's that's an accomplishment. They're all four and a half hours long too. Right. You know, one thing that's funny about Lackey though is that uh, yeah, I think in the past he's gotten his uh, his value out of uh, excellence and less out of durability. durability. And it seems like this year he got his value a little bit more out of durability and a little bit less out of excellence. Uh, yeah, well, that's yeah. And of course, that, that's uh, one thing that uh, might be surprising in general for um, you know for baseball fans is the degree to which durability you know can inform value. And um, yeah. uh, I think we had some discussions about that this past year uh, with about Josh Hamilton because uh, that was uh, Dave Cameron's lock, Stone Cold lock for AL MVP. And uh, there were some questions last year as to ha- how valuable Josh Hamilton was, in fact. And uh, but the idea is that he had, um, well, he in fact had done so much damage um, in the time, you know, uh, even before his injury. So as long as he was getting something slightly above replacement level um, production in his absence, then it actually made him a more valuable player for that reason. Um, yeah, I, I want to let you guys go in a second, but Ito, you know, actually, I want to ask you just just one quick question. I know you do a lot of work from the fantasy perspective. You contribute both to Rotographs and also to Roto Hardball, um, and I'm, sh- I'm sure among uh, seven or ten other outlets. I'm curious, going to the winter meetings and uh, covering the baseball from that angle, where you actually are seeing GMs and, and in some cases, players, if, if that at all informs your uh, preparation for your understanding of, of, of baseball from a fantasy angle. Uh, there was a fun moment actually. Um, the the uh, Dave managed, mentioned that the managers gave sort of mini pressers. Uh, they were kind of uh, interviews, um, and I think all year 
fantasy managers and and sort of fangrass readers uh, that don't play fantasy were kind of wondering what's going on with Mike Napoli, what's going on with Mike Napoli, like why? And it's been a sort of a sort of a meme, uh, you know, play my, Mike Napoli. He's a he's a great player. Um, and so I was at this interview uh, watching Mike Sosha talk, and I was sort of in the back of my head, what about Mike Napoli? And then somebody said, um, you know, is Mike Napoli a catcher? Um, and Mike Sosha said, well, Mike thinks he's a catcher, and I think he's a catcher, but he needs to go out there and catch. Um, and it was a great moment because it was sort of all the different facets of uh, of my being sort of came together. You know, I was like, oh, I'm a fangrass reader. I know what he's saying there, and I know how hard it is to evaluate catcher defense. And, you know, Matt Clausen's going through my head. And uh, then I'm also thinking about all the players that want to, you know, want to draft Mike Napoli next year and how they're trying to parse what Mike Sosa just said and, and what that means for his at-bats next year. And the, only, whether the, only or not scary, the only scary part about what you just said, though, is the fact that Matt Clausen is going through your head. That's the wacky next-door neighbor of the Fangraphs Audio podcast, of course. But you, you also, like what, what Joe was saying about how there, there's so much Twitter work going on, you, you kind of, uh, fantasy... For fantasy, you kind of have to wait a little bit to make sure something's true before you waste a whole post on, you know, what this guy looked like in this uniform, um, and then you find out that was that was nothing and that was just some, you know, fart in the bathroom, basically. Yeah, that's disgusting. Yeah, but you also uh, <laughs> witnessed that firsthand, didn't you? When because uh, I believe for Fangraphs, you wrote up a trade that didn't materialize. Yeah, that's true. Oh, what that was, was that? I, I'm forgetting that. That was uh, Jason Bartlett was uh, headed to uh, Baltimore for Nolan Reimold. Right. And since in, we in which the uh, post was Eno making the worst pun in the history of puns, <laughs> even R.J. Anderson was offended by that. Yes. What was that? <laughs> what was that? Eno? Would you share that with us again? <laughs> the title of the post was "Break the Reimold." Oh boy. All right. Uh, well, before before Eno breaks the podcast, let's shut it down uh, for this particular segment. Uh, but I would like to say thank you to Eno. Thank you. All right. Thank you to our full-time employee, Dave Cameron. All right. Thanks, Carson. Uh, right. And thank you to our biggest uh, Apple, or at least the man in the biggest Apple, Joe Polakowski. You know, I feel like everyone says thank you after you, you thank us. Can I just say screw you? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, do you feel like, do you have uh, ample grounds for, for telling me that? Oh, not at all. New York. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the guns he needs. Uh, well, for for this fantastic uh, and uh, enthralling panel, um, I would like to say thank you to all of them collectively. I am Carson Sestouli, and this continues to be Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.